to Pitts, who was beside me during the most crucial part of our military training and who, together with me, wrote the first chapter of what was meant to be a widely funny book before the sky fell on us. To Pitts, my sole brother, who tried to break through hundreds of Syrian soldiers in order to reach me, who is still trying to reach me. To my dearest Ilana, mother of our four children, who agreed to marry me after I returned from prison and who has put up with my many breakdowns all these years. To you, I am eternally grateful. To Benny, whose voice calling out to me on the comms before going silent forever, still rings in my ear. To Ronnie, who took my place on the machine gun for one short minute that stretched to eternity. My thanks is given to each of the hundreds of interviewees for this book. For some, it was a cleansing experience. For others, a real trauma. Jacob, are you there? My words break into Hebrew letters as they are tossed and carried by... To all the families who put their sons' lives in my hands, and I still do not have the courage to face them. To my Dvora, who for many years is paying the price for a battle she did not take part in. In memory of our friends, those who died in a battle, and those who died trying to save us. Friends don't forget friends. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel's Story. Those were all dedications of books written about a specific battle in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And we played them because today we're going to embark on a two-episode journey back to that war. And more precisely, back to one small hill, a dormant volcanic till in the southern Golan Heights. But before we begin, a word of warning. This is a war story, a very difficult war story. And as such, there are descriptions that may be hard for some people, especially children, to hear. With that, let's dive in. Here's Yochai Meital with Tel Saki. Part one. Most probably every story, every event has his incubation time required to, to be ready to go out. With most stories, there is no absolute beginning or end. Life's narratives are usually just not that tidy. Our story today is different. It takes place in a very specific time and lasts exactly 36 hours. But as Menachem Ansbacher, one of the heroes of this tale, just said, every event has its incubation time. For a 67-year-old Menachem, a tall, blue-eyed former commander in the paratroopers, that incubation time was nearly a quarter of a century. In 1996, he and his wife Dvora went out on a date to see a Hollywood war flick called Courage Under Fire, set during the Gulf War. Iraq War, the first... An American helicopter crashed in a small hill. A female pilot, played by Meg Ryan, and about five warriors. Now's the time to do it, Captain. Maybe we slip by him in the dark. And all around them, there is a big plateau full of Iraqis oh, great. that are trying to climb the small hill and kill them. Come on, Captain. I don't want to wait here to die. Anyway, on their way home, Menachem's wife innocently asked a question. If that film does not remind me my battle in uh, 73. And then it happened suddenly for me. I didn't expect it. I just broke into a, a cry and it was loud. It was bizarre to me because I never cried. I didn't recognize the voice, the sound of my cry. And I couldn't see the road because of my tears. And then I had to, to stop very uh, dramatically and put myself aside to free the way. My name is Dan Almagor. I live now in the U.S., in Florida. For Dan, one of Menachem's soldiers, 
it was a different 90s Hollywood war movie that did it. Spielberg's epic, Saving Private Ryan. And I remember like shaking through the entire movie to a point that my wife got scared. She didn't know what happened to me. She thought I was getting like seizure. My wife thought that I completely lost it. Over the past year and a half, I've spoken to dozens of soldiers, all of them survivors of one specific battle in the southern Golan Heights, a place that left such a profound impact on their lives that many of them refer to it as their second birthplace. Yet after the war, as they all dispersed, either to hospital, either to the graveyard, they didn't stay in touch. We just, as a bomb, every one of us was fragmented to another direction. Everything that on a street, every time you meet a friend, brings you back into a very dark place. I made the decision that um, I have to get away from these pictures as far as I can. I never went to see anyone or meet anyone. Klum, I mean nothing. We tried very politely not to meet each other. At home as well, they preferred not to share their experiences. To look it. To lock it, not to touch it, because <clears throat> it will hurt you. Don't touch, don't keep away. But for most of them, the demons of the past refuse to go away. You can get away from the war, but the war will never get away from you. Even today, I have some white nights. As any first-year psychology student will tell you, all these descriptions are classic symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Wars are usually talked about in broad terms. Forces mobilized, land grabbed, alliances, and stratagem. But the description given by novelist James Jones, a simple frontline soldier during some of the Second World War's most harrowing battles, sounds much more like what I was hearing. Even those of us who hated it found it exciting, sometimes. That is what the civilian people never understand about their returned soldiers in any war. They cannot understand how we could hate it and still like it. And they do not realize that they have a lot of dead men around them. Dead men who are walking around and breathing. Some men find it hard to come back. Some never come back at all. Not completely. End quote. Growing up in Israel, you hear a ton of war stories. Come on! I went through this period between third and fifth grade. <laughs> When all I read were accounts of the antics of the Palmach and the IDF special units. It's not going to be easy. It's hard to get there. When do I leave? For obvious reasons, the focus is usually on success stories. Look at them, they're going. It's all over, don't you understand? We've beaten them. They're pulling out. They've had enough. Everybody's had enough. But what about the battles that we did not win? What about the survivors who didn't get to come home to a hero's welcome? Whose bravery and sacrifice went unrecognized? This story is about them. It's a story about what war does to friendship. And how ultimately, camaraderie may be the only cure to the emotional wounds inflicted by war. The Yom Kippur War famously caught Israel by surprise. Most of its regular soldiers were at home, many in synagogue, praying. Despite various different warning signs, the IDF hadn't called up the reserves, which formed the bulk of its force. So, on Saturday, October 6th, 1973, the IDF's outposts were primarily manned by young conscripted officers, like 20-year-old Menachem. Menachem, a first lieutenant in the paratroopers, was stationed in El Al, the regional headquarters of the southern Golan. His regiment had arrived just a few days earlier and taken command of the area. That morning, he was praying shacharit with some of his men when he was called out for an emergency debriefing. And they told me that maybe some clashes expected with the Syrian 
and I should take uh, five guys and go to Tel Sakit. Menachem's mission was to head to a lookout spot close to the Syrian border in order to be able to direct Israeli artillery in case a small skirmish developed. I'm not comfortable to say it, but at that age, 20, it's a kind of fun. Like excitement? Yeah. When you're soldiers, you want to do something. Not to kill, but you want to do something. I was uh, a little bit happy because since I came to the Golan, there was no fighting. And when you are 19, that's what you want to do. Not to shoot from your tank on barrels, but shooting at Syrian tanks. Hallelujah! On each tank, Syrian tank, that we explode, blown up, we used to get a bottle of champagne. Bottle of champagne. The whole company is happy. The whole platoon is... We're the best platoon in the army. Here it comes. Now I'm going to show them what I can do with my tank. Those were Niratir. You can call me an outlaw if you want. It's okay. Moti Aviam. I was uh, 19. I was the, one of the youngest tank commanders in the uh, brigade. And Rob Reichmanns. I'm a Dutchman. I was born in Amsterdam. I'm not a Jewish. I'm not a believer, I'll say, okay? Especially after the war. All tank soldiers deployed in the area. Here's Menachem again. We were raised with album from Six-Day War. This generation of soldiers had been teenagers when Israel experienced the stunning victory of the Six-Day War and the ensuing euphoria. We are superpower, a local superpower. No one can beat us. Most had never been in active combat and were looking forward to their turn at glory, their case of champagne. Menachem himself had spent the Six-Day War cowering in a bomb shelter in Jerusalem with his parents. He swore to himself, then and there, that next time it will be different. He'll be out there fighting, not stuck in some bunker. And well, you know the end, he told me. But back to the southern Golan, to the regional command at El Al, where Menachem had just been ordered to take four of his men and head immediately to the Tel Saki lookout post. It's BLI. He pointed at me. This is Lazy Agassi, one of those four soldiers. Well, Shlomo. And Shlomo, and Shaike, and Ronnie. Ronnie. I was uh, in a bunker with um, one of my best friends, Ronnie Herzenstein. When Menachem came in, he called Ronnie Herzenstein to go with him. And I remember me asking Menachem, can I join you also? Menachem said, no, I have enough. As far as Menachem, the commander, was concerned, it was just one of those quick decisions. It doesn't have any deep meaning, just, you know, when you take a cookie. Turned out that these choices was so important. Menachem's random selection would end up haunting Dan for the rest of his life. Maybe I was, if I was more determined to stand up and insist to, to join, maybe Ronnie would still be alive. It's not logical, but it comes back all the time. It does follow me through life. So while Dan was ordered to stay behind at HQ, the soldiers Menachem chose for the mission quickly gathered their equipment. I quickly finished praying and stashed my prayer book right here, my left breast pocket. And they left uh, in this cloud of dust towards Tel Saki. Menachem, Shlomo, Shaike, Lazy, and Droni, along with the driver, Moshe Levi, climbed onto an APC, an armored personnel carrier, left El Al, and headed northeast. I was alone on the road, that Shabbat, that Yom Kippur, no one is traveling. After about 10-15 minutes, they arrived at their destination, Tel Saki, a small, unimpressive hill. Not very high, 90 feet above the surrounding plateau. But because it's plateau, you can look 360 degrees all around. It was an unmanned position, not protected by barbed wire or minefields, 
only by its natural covering of dry thorns and jagged volcanic rock. The only substantial shelter on the hill was a small concrete bunker. I call it a bunker, people imagine a fortress. We're talking about a pathetic little room, uh, very small. That's Yaakov Selavan, a former major in the 188 Armored Brigade, and sort of their unofficial historian. 2.6 on 3.7 meters. There's two corridors, one on each side, but no doors. Just to allow six soldiers to go to sleep. This concrete room wasn't buried in the ground. It was just sort of sitting there, slightly below the peak. It's a place to take shelter from light shooting, but not heavy battle. As Menachem's crew drove to the top of the hill, the serene view of the plateau opened up in all directions. We climb up the small uh, hill. I gave uh, a short instruction about the location around, about our mission. And there was nothing. There was silence. Silence. Because nothing has happened, me and another soldier uh, called Lazy, which is observant as well, we continue to pray that uh, we have a long prayer in Yom Kippur. Suddenly I heard the uh, low frequency boom of the shells that are going into the air. Back at HQ, Dan could hear them too. Like thunders, one of those thunderstorms that really shakes the air. Everything smells from phosphor, from burning. I immediately identified and I shouted to my soldier, get into the bunker, that small room of concrete. And I knew that indeed it, it begin now. I didn't know what is beginning, but here they are, here they come. What Menachem didn't know at the time, but would very soon discover, is that the Syrian army had opened their offensive with a massive bombardment of the entire Golan Heights. It felt like an earthquake. And then I look up, I see Syrian jets dropping bombs on us. That was um, unbelievable. I, I, I didn't think it's going to happen. It was the end of the summer. All the Golan Heights could see Thorns. Cush. Dry grass. Heavy smoke fires. My mission was to observe and trying to identify from where they are uh, shooting, but the smoke was so thick, I couldn't see even my shoes. We're estimating 30,000 artillery shells land in all northern Israel. That's about a thousand bombs a minute. That's like crazy. When I reached the edge of the ridge, Suddenly I saw like a wall of black. The whole line was covered with uh, thousands of artillery shells. This is retired General Yoram Yair, better known by his nickname, Yaya. Which is very catchable, so this is my trademark. Yaya, Menachem's direct commander, was only 26 at the time. I was uh, during the Yom Kippur War commanding the southern half of the Golan Heights. Yaya was actually in Jerusalem on that fateful Saturday morning, as soon as he caught wind of intelligence reports predicting a local skirmish with the Syrians. He quickly made his way up north and reached the regional command center at Elal just as the bombardment started. Immediately following that initial shelling, Syrian forces began their foray. And the major break-in was in our area. Yaya relied on reports from his soldiers on the front line, people like Menachem, to understand what was going on. As the bombardment eased and the smoke cleared, Menachem could hardly believe his eyes. Shocked, he reached for the comm and relayed what he was seeing to Yaya in Elal. He said to me, Yaya, an armor brigade is attacking me. I said to him, hey, boy, do me a favor. Where have you 
seen in your life an armor brigade? Don't tell me armor brigade. Count the numbers. How many tanks do you see? When you reach 60, or I don't remember how many, I said, hey, stop. I didn't tell him, but I knew that it's not an armor brigade, it's a whole division. The ratio on the Golan, we're talking about 177 tanks facing 1,400 Syrian tanks. Add in artillery, add in planes, add in the combat engineering soldiers who are coming with the bridges and the infantry. Every Israeli soldier, 600 Israeli soldiers, every guy in the front line, every Menachem, has 100 Syrians in front of him. Overwhelmed by the sheer number of troops headed their way, the unprepared Israeli forces on the Golan watched as columns of tanks rolled westward on an old Roman road. Much as Ahab, Cyrus, Salahaddin, the Crusaders, the Mamluks, and the Ottomans all had before them. They're just moving tanks, tractors, D9, you know, to the trenches. Anticipating that Israel would quickly deploy its air force, the Syrian anti-aircraft batteries were set and ready. IDF phantoms were dropping like flies. As the Syrian engineering corps quickly got to work bridging the anti-tank trenches and dismantling landmines along the border. And it's a big operation to break in. It took all the afternoon. Menachem had the questionable fortune of having a front row seat to what was perhaps the biggest tank battle since Rommel and Montgomery clashed at El Almen. We just sat on this hill and saw the big show and nothing happened at Tel Saki at that time. By late afternoon, the Syrian Engineering Corps had completed its mission and enemy forces made their way into Israeli territory. Menachem sees that the valley under him is covered with hundreds of Syrian vehicles, logistics, radio line, the full package. A whole Syrian brigade is parked under him. Throughout the afternoon, the few Israeli tanks deployed in the area fought bravely, taking out dozens of Syrian vehicles. But as the battle wore on, they started to run out of ammunition and reinforcements were nowhere to be seen. When night fell, the situation got even worse, since the Syrian forces had night vision equipment that the Israeli troops lacked. Yaya knew the situation was dire. I think that at 10 o'clock at night, there was nearly no operational tanks in my region. Throughout the night, IDF soldiers fleeing burning tanks snuck up the hill in search of shelter. And arrived in a shock to Tel Saki. Meanwhile, Menachem and his small crew were firing off with all they had at the Syrians down below. And actually today I consider it just a waste of ammunition, but I cannot change the past. Menachem manned the machine gun on their APC. Its metal plates dinged madly with the heavy showering of Syrian bullets. Ringing like a school ring. Ring. I had uh, an impression that I'm some kind of superhuman. They're shooting so many balls on me, but no one hit me. Until they did. Menachem took a bullet to his leg. Ronnie Helsenstein, one of his soldiers, quickly took his place and kept on firing. Before I finished to dress my wound, the uh, heavy machine gun stopped shooting. Roni was shot in the chest and head. He died shortly after. Again, without a moment's hesitation, Lazy, another of Menachem's soldiers, quickly took his place. Desperately, they kept fending off wave after wave of Syrian advances on the hill. And every attempt, they get better. And I was running very quickly out of ammunition. With the additional soldiers who fled to Tel Saki, the original force of five paratroopers grew to over two dozen. They were a ragtag collection of men, splintered from their original units, tankless tankers, and infantrymen down to their last bullets. Menachem peeked into the tiny bunker where many of them were huddled together. He asked the soldier to dash out to the burned tanks around the hill 
and tried to gather any ammunition he could find. He didn't say Moti, he didn't know me, he didn't know my name. But he said someone, and I, I thought that I'm the someone. As Moti ran out of the bunker, Shaike, one of Menachem's soldiers, who was outside and unaware of his commander's orders, noticed a movement out of the corner of his eye. He thought we are Syrians attacking him from the back. So he stood up with his Uzi and shot at us. Three bullets hit me. It just took me off the ground. I shouted something in Hebrew and that's why he stopped shooting and ran to us and said, why didn't you tell me you're coming? Why didn't you tell me you're coming? But that's a war. He did exactly what a good soldier should do in a war. Turn around and you shoot because you're going, otherwise you're going to lose your, your, your life. Moti was quickly dragged back into the bunker. Some guy from the Petropus who um, wrapped me and put my arm on my chest and tied it. Suddenly I, I felt drops coming down from the tip of my nose. And I touched it and looked at it. I see it's blood. So I start to take my hand up, up, up and under the helmet, which was still on my head. And there was a heavy scratch in my forehead, right between the eyes. And then I put my finger through the helmet. There was a nine millimeter hole in the helmet. So the bullet went through the helmet and fell in the space between it and my forehead. And I said to myself, I don't believe I got a bullet in my head, right between the eyes. The situation at Tel Saki was deteriorating rapidly, and Menachem, himself wounded, was frantically radioing for backup and medical assistance. Dan at HQ with Yaya heard all of these calls for help. It was evident in his voice, uh, Menachem's voice, that he was desperate. Also listening in on the comms was Menachem's close childhood friend and fellow officer, Benny Hanani. Benny, he was begging our commander to allow him to join us and reinforce us with his 20 soldiers. He wanted to help. Yaya wouldn't authorize the rescue mission. He thought it was just too risky. Benny wouldn't let it go. Kept insisting again, I need to help Menachem. I need to help Menachem. Realizing Benny was likely going to disobey him and go anyway, Yaya finally gave him the green light to head towards Tel Saki on an evacuation mission. From his position on the Tel, Menachem saw Benny and his men approaching. And I could see him running on the road, shooting in all direction, but just before he's uh, taking the road to the hill, there was a big cloud of black smoke going up. And then we heard, Imele, 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 and then quiet. We lay down and see the vehicle uh, burning and we smell the bodies. They fought until the end. It was a short battle. No one survived but two of the 20. Back in Elal, Yaya turned to his men. And he said, I need six volunteers to go to Tel Saki. Everyone understood the risk involved. And yet... Every single person stood up. In the end... Fourteen people crammed into the brigade's last armored vehicle and headed toward the hill. Most of these 14 guys get killed fairly quickly. There was more fallen soldiers trying to rescue us than the number we were on the tell. Having seen dozens of his friends perish in the attempt to reach him, Menachem realized that he was running out of options. It was about... 8 o'clock in the morning, Sunday, after they fell to reinforce me. And here comes the attack that 
are going toward us. They are forming a row. They are taking out the Klashnikov, mounting the bayonet. And they are beginning to advance. So I ordered at that time to burn out all the secret paper they have to enter into the bunker. After a long night of fighting, the motley crew of 27 wounded and tired soldiers on Telsaki hid in the small bunker. Most of them didn't know each other. They took the bodies of their fallen friends with them and placed them at the two entrances. Before going in himself, Menachem broadcast one last message from the communication box on the APC outside. Ansbacher, in a very clear words, say to me, Listen, Yaya, this is the end. We don't have enough ammunition to stop the Syrian from climbing the hill. Most probably will not meet again. Over and out. And he turned the radio off. I scrambled the uh, frequencies. This was not part of our nomenclature to show emotions were tough as nails, but inside our heart exploded. I know my heart, I was literally hurting. My heart was hurting. And from that moment on, I haven't heard from anyone on Telsaki. We'll be right back. And now, back to Telsaki. It's Sunday morning, October 7th, 1973 the second day of the Yom Kippur War. After staving off Syrian assaults all night long, and having witnessed several disastrous rescue missions, 20-year-old First Lieutenant Menachem Ansbacher prepared his men for the end. He radioed in a parting message, scrambled the communication frequencies, destroyed maps and intelligence documents, and led the 27 soldiers on the hill into a tiny bunker. Okay, back to Yochai. As Menachem and his men retreated into the bunker to wait for what seemed like the inevitable end, he suddenly had one last desperate idea. To ask our artillery, IDF artillery, to bomb us. Hoping the shelling would discourage the Syrians from climbing the hill, he was finally fulfilling his original mission, directing Israeli artillery. He just never imagined he would be directing the fire on himself. He gave them the exact position, location. But the commander of the artillery battery kept asking him to repeat the coordinates. Yeah, he told me, uh, listen, you're making a mistake that our position, it took long seconds that indeed I'm asking him to shoot at me. Menachem and his men fully understood the possible consequences. If it fall directly on our bunker, it destroyed, definitely. No doubt about it. But I think it's, it's better than to meet the Syrian. It's quicker and less painful. He lay inside the bunker, waiting for the bombs to fall. Only my eyes were outside just to be able to see if it falls in place. And after three shots, one big shell falls and it took uh, 40 seconds for all the ash and rocks to fall down back to earth. I told him, okay, now you will shoot five or six per minute, shoot, fire. And then he answered me very politely and quietly that he don't have any more ammunition. He wished me luck and just switch off so the Syrians were waiting for a few more minutes and they just start climbing on the hill. I realized that I have no option. That was the actually end of the game for me. They will come, they will try to enter, we shall shoot on them, they will throw inside grenade and they will win. And then I began to hear uh, black jokes, dark humor. The military cemetery in Jerusalem. Did you left at home a good picture? And thing like that. 
that no mother will, would like to hear it. I stopped it by, by order and then it was quiet inside and in this quiet, in this silence, we could hear only the Syrians shouting outside. We could hear the loudspeaker of their communication, the engine of their APCs. So I took uh, a prayer book that was in my shirt pocket and I told them that uh, I'm gonna read a small prayer from Tehillim Psalms. Shira Malot Mimamakim Kratik Adonai Adonai Shimha Bekolit Yena Oznecha Kashuvot Lekol Tachanonai Im Avonot Ishmoria etc. etc. Then a burst of uh, shooting was entering from the right entrance. Everyone who is in the army knows that the way to clear a bunker is to shoot inside and then throw a grenade and then you go inside. That's the method. I was hit by something uh, that hit my chest. It took me a few seconds to realize that it was a hand grenade. It fell on the ground. I just succeed to turn on, on place. There was a huge explosion. One of the soldiers, Corporal Shlomi Pachima, was hit in the head and died on the spot. I was thrown on the air to the other entrance and I began to lose conscience. There are no words to explain it, okay? The only thing I felt and remember it very well it's like someone who takes a heavy sledgehammer and hit you on your chest. I heard the air coming out of my nose from my lungs, okay? Squeezed the body. And after that, there was an absolute silence. And then you're dead. Was it like comforting, this thought that you're... you're... No. No, no, I was very sad to be dead. I was very sad. I wanted to stay alive, like most of people. Just before phasing out, if I can say that, I shout into the black space. If anyone is alive, he should go out, surrender, and tell the Syrian that all the soldiers inside the bunker are dead. Yitzhak Negerker, one of the tank soldiers, bravely volunteered and stepped outside the bunker. We hear him shout, don't shoot, don't shoot, we surrender. The minute he went outside, we hear shooting. We understood that the Syrians are not taking any prisoners. Menachem said, they're going to slaughter us with knives. We not let them. Grenades in hand, the soldiers waited tensely for the Syrians to enter the bunker. But as the smoke cleared, no one did. It seemed that they had all been taken for dead. This end, the battle on the tail, on the hill. And now begin a second story of a simple surviving in a room inside the Syrian territory. For the next 36 hours, they're not war heroes. They're a bunch of 19, 20-year-olds who just want to survive and get back home to their mamas. That's it. No food or water. No medical equipment. Nothing. For hours, the soldiers, many of them severely wounded, sat motionless in the dark, suppressing their moans, each in their own world, trying their best not to make a sound. They think we are dead. We are behaving very carefully not to give them any hint that they are wrong. When I was awake again, we could hear Syrian all around talking to themselves, giving order. We heard their communication. Every now and then, another group of Syrian forces would reach the hill toss a grenade and shoot some bullets into the bunker. 
At some point, a tank shell or RPG hit the roof, shaking the room violently. All of us get wound again, get hit from the fragments. We swallowed the pain because we knew. We know that we have to keep the silence. Suddenly, Menachem's soldier, Shaike, who was severely wounded, regained consciousness. He was very thirsty. And started shouting. He was shouting, I want more water, I want more water. Shaike stopped. Menachem said, Shaike, Shaike, don't shout, the Syrians outside. But in his distress, Shaike wouldn't let up, thereby endangering the entire group. Menachem faced the hardest decision of his young life. He could barely move. Yet still, he was the man in charge, and all eyes were on him. He needed to make a call, and he needed to make it fast. So I, I ordered Lazy, one of the soldiers, to strangle him. He gave an order to execute one of his soldiers, which he loves very much, in an attempt to save the rest. That's one of the hardest decisions I ever heard of a commander. Lazy tried to comply, smothering Shaike with his bare hands, but with a shattered and dislocated shoulder, he simply couldn't press down hard enough. This just made matters worse as Shaike's pleas for water got even louder. So I ordered Avital, another soldier of mine, to do it. But Avital, who had a very good sense of solving problems, he said, wait, wait, I have an idea. So he took his cigarette box he wrote on it, Shaike, shut up, Syrian outside, no water. With a match, he'll light a match near the paper. And Shaike saw it and kept quiet until the end of the war. Since they believed all the Israelis were dead, the Syrian forces who had conquered the hill eventually left Tel Saki and moved on west, leaving only a couple of foot soldiers to guard the post. So in the moment of relative quiet, Nir and two other soldiers crept out of the bunker and snuck onto one of the defunct tanks scattered on the hill. We took water, we took four blankets, and as I'm going off the tank, I see that the electricity is working. That means I have radio. Just a few miles away, Yaya, who was certain that Menachem and all his men on Tel Saki were either long dead or else captured, was standing on the roof of the regional command in El Al. Suddenly, I hear, Kod Kod, Marak, Khan, Gafru, Tel Saki is calling. Wow. My God, it's like hearing someone from the dead side. Kolot Nina Ofer. How are you doing there? Yaya asked him. Same as before. Garua. Terrible. Without missing a beat, Yaya told them that an extraction force would be on its way momentarily. Hold on, he said. Over and out. We crawled from the tank back to the bunker. Carrying some much-needed water and blankets, Nir and his friends returned with something even more precious. Hope. He told Menachem what Yaya had said. That I shouldn't be a hero, just to keep quiet, to keep calm. He will be coming very shortly to rescue us. How much time? About an hour or so. An hour passed, and there was no sign of Yaya or his extraction forces. So I waited another 10 minutes, another 15 minutes, and then very hesitantly, very politely, what's about the issue that we talked earlier? And he said that he has uh, an encounter with the Syrian forces. He destroyed them, annihilated them. And he will be with us in about half an hour, 40 minutes or so, over. Another hour passed. Again, hesitantly, Tel Saki checked in with Yaya. He told them that the rescuers... Had uh, some technical problem with the APC. They will fix it within 10 minutes and then he will continue toward us, over. And so it went on, throughout the tense night. But it's all stories. Listen, I'm standing alone 
Not that I don't have a tank. I have my personal Uzi. I, I'm telling them lies and use all my creative imagination. And the fact is that... It worked. I believed him. Everyone believed him. They are convinced. You know, the most important thing that you need to keep is the hope of your soldiers. A slight flash of hope. He has everything. Even if you are very low, but you can collect some motivation to withstand another half an hour, another several minutes. He understood it very well and gave us exactly the dose that we needed of hope until the battery that was dead. And then we lose communication with him, and that was almost morning. During the night, the Israeli reserve forces had finally made their way up north and prepared to launch their counteroffensive at dawn. As the sun was rising on the third day of the war, October 8th, the soldiers on Tel Saki, now an enemy position, were holding on by a thread. They had been in the bunker for over 30 hours when, again, the hill started to shake. But this time, it was the IDF doing the shaking. The few Syrian soldiers left to guard the hill quickly scrambled to find shelter. Now, the only place to hide, as you can see, is only the bunker. And two Syrians enter with the back toward us. They are looking what's happening outside. In other words, the Syrian soldiers were now hiding in the same bunker with all the Israeli soldiers who themselves had been hiding there from the Syrians. They were so close, Menachem could reach out and touch them. A meter from me, three feet, something like that. The Syrians, of course, thought everyone in the bunker was dead. So they sat facing the entrance, from where, as far as they were concerned, an Israeli attack might come. Silently, Menachem pointed his Uzi in their direction and very slowly reached for a hand grenade. He gestured to his men, whose eyes, unlike those of the Syrians, had long grown accustomed to the dark. I showed them that I take the safety pin out of the hand grenade, and I think they understood that if something like that happened, we are throwing the hand grenade into the entrance, and we are shooting at them. We are going to die, we are going to take them with us. Shimson Agibor, you know? Like biblical Samson, bringing down the temple on himself and the Philistines around him, the Tel Saki soldiers braced themselves for a fight to the death. And I was saying to myself, I was lucky once. I got a bullet in my head. I was lucky twice. There was a grenade bomb and I'm alive. Now we're going to die. I knew that in a few seconds I'm going to die. We understood that our destiny was doomed. Decided. It's like what you do in a falling plane in the middle of the ocean. Everyone is in his own uh, thought, you know? It's so pity to die, especially when my sister has to give birth every day. And they will name the baby after me. All the history came back. Everything came back to us. Home, working in the bananas, my family. I was thinking about my mother, I don't know why. Just my mother. I heard many stories about that all your life is running in front of you like a high-speed film. I heard uh, stories about a white tunnel that goes from you to the sky. I cannot confirm it. It's just a, a, a dense stress, nothing but that. And after a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes or something like that, the bombardment outside finished. That's a long time. It must seem like forever. More than that. For few hours. As soon as the shelling ceased, the Syrians dashed out of the bunker, having never turned around to see Menachem and his men. But... Before the deserter, the one who was standing over here, decided to leave us with a parting gift. And he rolled a hand grenade. And boom, blown. Amazingly, the grenade rolled underneath the stretcher where the body of Shlomi Pachima, 
the tank soldier who died in the first grenade explosion lay. The corpse absorbed most of the impact and saved many lives. Within minutes, the soldiers on Telsaki heard the sounds of war getting closer and louder. We heard shooting and we heard engine. And I cannot differentiate between Israeli tank engine and Syrian tank engine, but the guys from the armed force can. Their reports, however, were discouraging. It's Syrian, it's Syrian, it's Syrian, until a point in time that they said, oh, this engine is Israeli. We hear a tank climbing the hill. The tank stops. There's like, like tomb silent. No one was breathing. We got used that every time we can hear this, it's a sign for a coming problem. Suddenly there's a call from outside. The shouting email. Yes, Hey, are there any tank units here? We thought that the Syrians are making a game on us. First time we didn't answer, second time we didn't answer, third time I went up with two hand grenades in my hand. That is, was the moment that we all... Uh, Born again. When they tore off our bloody uniforms, I noticed that my prayer book, the same one I've been using when we set out for the battle, was still in my breast pocket. And look, it saved my life. A piece of sharpnel hit it, went through all the pages. And by the time it reached my body, it barely scratched me. I can recall two reserve captains that uh, take care of me. Each one of them gave me a shot of uh, morphine in each leg, and everything was in vivid color, and I felt very relaxed. It's like the war stops for, for a second. I'm not sure it was quite, it was quite for me. Maybe because everything was behind me now. I could see only the sky, the blue sky. Clear blue and quiet. Very special blue with morphine. And suddenly I saw Yaya. His head was covering at least half of the sky. I ran up and I found them already out on stretchers. And it took him some second to realize that I am Menachem because I was full of uh, uh, black ash. And he looked at me and I said to him, or something like this, and that's the end of the story. But the end of one story is only the beginning of another. Yochai Meital produced, scored, and sound designed that story. The battle at Tilsaki was one of the most dramatic sagas in what was one of the most intense theaters of war in 1973. Throughout the Golan Heights, Israeli forces were vastly outnumbered in the first few days of the Yom Kippur War. Still, through tremendous acts of heroism and ingenuity, they managed to delay the Syrian troops. In doing so, they not only prevented a devastating invasion into the heart of Israel, but they also bought the idea of precious time used to mount a response. But, of course, this came at a horrible price. Many lost their lives in those first few days of war, and many of those who survived spent years, sometimes decades, piecing their lives back together. In our next episode, we'll return to Menachem and his group of fragmented soldiers, and follow them on a very different kind of journey. I knew it's a war only three days later in the hospital. When my girlfriend was sitting near me, read from the newspaper and said that the headlines are um, the war continues in both fronts. And I said, what war? She said, where do you think you come from? I said, I don't know. I never thought about it. We didn't have a chance to reunify after the big war and to close the story. For years I was very lonely because of it. I was an unpleasant guy. My older daughter ran away from me to New Zealand. So far, if you keep walking, 
we started to come back. <laughs> she couldn't stand me. You know, these guys wake up every morning in that bunker. They go to sleep in that bunker. They celebrate, they mourn. They're all still on that hill. The task of a commander is to go to battle and to come back after he won it with all his soldiers with him. And first of all, I didn't want this battle. And second, most of my soldiers are dead now and I'm alive. So it's, uh, it's hard to explain, still too hard. I don't know what to say. So be sure to join us next time for Tel Saki Part 2. Thanks to the Friendship and Heritage Foundation, an NGO set up by the survivors of Tel Saki in order to commemorate their fallen friends. Thanks to Aviram Barkai, Moshe Givati, Dan Carlin, Haley Lerman, Ruven Gal, and Yaakov Selavan for his help with fact-checking this story. Yaakov actually leads tours of Tel Saki and runs an escape room experience at the Tel. You can check it out at slingshot.co.il. And of course, thanks to Esther Werdiger, Wayne Hoffman, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagg, and Joy Levitt. A massive thanks to Liat Saba, who arranged and performed the haunting rendition of Avinu Malkenu, and a bunch of other tracks you heard on today's episode. Go to our site, israelstory.org, where we'll post a link to Liat's beautiful work. Additional music from Jorge Mejia, Doug Maxwell, and Yochai Meital. As always, Sela Weissblum created the mix. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Metal, Zev Levi, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Fields, Skylar Inman, Marie Ruder, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. Jeff Umbro from the Podglomerate is our marketing director. Clara Fug, Michael Vivier, and Alicia Vergara are wonderful production interns. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back soon with a new Israel Story episode. So till then, stay safe, shalom shalom, and yalla bye. <laughs> Oh
Thank you. 